Dying for Media. Just a little note to let you know that we will be talking about death in this series, and some names and information have been changed. Today, in particular, we will be talking about suicide. And if you need support, you can always call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Hi, Nikki. Hey. I missed you. I missed you too. You know, in the disclaimer in the beginning, I mentioned um, 988, which is the suicide hotline. And um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually used to work there. Oh my gosh, I didn't know this. Back when it was a normal phone number. It was like one, I can't, I don't remember. Yeah, Yeah. something super But now it's 988. How awesome is that? Isn't that that nice? Yeah. It's so easy to remember. I want Um, to hear about this. You do? Yeah. How do you get into this? Well, I... um, Suicide has definitely affected my family, and I just mm. always felt this. I wanted to do something to help, and I didn't know what to do. So I was actually watching that Scientology documentary that Leah Remini did. Uh-huh. And at the end of the documentary, they put up this little card about the Suicide Prevention Center. And I thought, I was like, I, I want to call that. I just, what happens when you call that line? Yeah. So I called it. Oh my gosh, you called it. I just called it. And I said, Hi, I'm not suicidal. But I am interested in like helping. How can I help? And the guy sent me to another number and said, you can actually go through the training to become a lifeline crisis sort of phone operator. Oh, nice. And it was, it was some intense training. Like it, I'm it wasn't sure. like a weekend. It was, I think, like six full weekends, Saturday, Sunday, wow. and testing and getting on the lines and, and helping oh, people. And wow. it was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Mm. Yeah, I loved it. Um, the only thing is, like, I was not very good. <laughs> what do you mean? I was really good in a crisis, but it's a crisis line. So when yeah. people would call, you'd have a certain amount of time where you'd have to find out whether or not they were really in need and they were high risk. Yeah. And so if they were just I- having suicidal ideation mm-hmm. or sort of just having a really, really hard day and contemplating things... They didn't fall in that crisis. Like crisis means you're going to kill yourself today. Right. So I would be on these calls with people for 20, 30, 35 minutes. And my supervisor, who I loved, by the way, um, she told me over and over again that I spent way too much time on the calls. Like I would be on the call. She'd be looking at me and she'd be giving me like <laughs> wrap it up, like over her head, like whoop, let's go. Oh. And I was like, ah, I can't get off the phone. But I remember there was this one gentleman who called me from a payphone oh. at a, oh God, every time I think about him, I cry. He called me from a payphone at a gas station. Uh-huh. And he said, I am homeless. And I don't have anywhere to go, and I don't want to live anymore. And right now, I'm currently living in the the ditch that I've dug out between the building and the bathroom area, and I'm sleeping there at night, and I don't have anywhere to go, and I don't have anyone to call, and I don't know what to do. And I just thought, oh, my God. And I said, how likely are you to do this tonight? And he said, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking about it. Yeah. So that's not... A high risk caller. So I could not gonna I spent the next 30 minutes talking to him, but what oh, I learned is that he had had a really good life and he had family and things took a downward spiral and he didn't know what to do and he didn't know where to go. And I stayed on the phone with him forever. Like I just couldn't picturing him <laughs> getting off the phone with me and like going to his little like oh. dugout ditch where he was gonna stay that night. Yeah. Just broke my heart. Yeah. So yeah. I stayed on the phone. Oh. 
And I got in big trouble. <laughs> Just wrap it up. But you did a mitzvah, you know. You, oh. you really gave him what he needed. He needed to talk. He needed to be heard. And I loved being there he for him. He probably loved that. He probably slept good. He probably th- thought about you in the kind voice. You know, oh, Peggy, thanks for saying so that. That's so important. Yeah. And he was thinking about it. He didn't want to live, but he didn't know what to do. And he was in a real crisis. Um, but he wasn't... He wasn't high risk, so I got off the phone, and I just remember thinking, "Gosh, this is this is a real tightrope act." And I, yeah, um, yeah, I loved doing the work. It was really hard, but I loved it. That's so, really hard. But I did learn throughout all of this is that I'm not afraid to ask people. You're having a hard time, but are you thinking of killing yourself? Right? Are you right. suicidal? Right. Where are you on that? Um, because if it's if you're bringing it up and you're talking about it, then all of a sudden it's not taboo anymore. Exactly. And I think talking about the uncomfortable things, I'm. I'm kind of good at it. I like You're it. super good at it. That's why we're on near death. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're talking about dying. Oh, right? Baby. Yeah. Oh, I miss that. I miss that work. So Maybe I'm sure you should go you... back and do it again. It was, no. No. Okay. <laughs> Look, I'm talking, my armpits are sweating while I'm talking about it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm Nikki Boyer, and my friend Reverend Peggy has helped guide nearly 2,000 people through their last moments of life on Earth. Emotional, beautiful, peculiar, supernatural, shocking. These are those stories. This is Near Death. So, Peggy, I'm sure you deal with a fair amount of suicides at the hospital. Yes. Right? Like, too many too many. I, I there's sure. a lot, you know, young people. There's a lot of overdosing. There's so many, so Failed much of that. Suicides Failed too. suicides. Oh. But I also, which is really fascinating for me, and something pretty new in a way, is the Death with Dignity Act. Oh right. So the assisted suicide. Yeah, it's amazing. It's mm. been so interesting. So do you deal uh, with the Death with Dignity Act a lot at the hospital? Not at the hospital as much, but I do with the ALS clinic. Because with ALS right now, in this time, we don't have a cure. So you're getting a diagnosis and usually it's, you know, two to five years left of life. So this is a long-term care. It's an incredible clinic. It has every discipline. So you come in and you see every person you need to see in one day. Mm. They're all over the country now. And you get to see PT, OT, speech, neuropsych, spiritual care, neurology, uh, pulmonology. You see all the people that will help you in one day. And it's amazing. And I, and I well, love- Peggy, can I interrupt for really quick? Yeah, I want to yeah. know what is ALS exactly? Like how does it affect you? Well, ALS is a progressive neurological disease. And I'm not medical, remember. So f- what I know about it is that it, it just, you slowly lose- all of your kind of all of your muscle, and so your you know like your lungs, kind of your respiratory. You lose the respiratory gift. You lose, which is terrifying your because that's what a lot of ALS patients I think are afraid of is choking yeah. to death or that feeling of almost yeah. like you're drowning because yeah. your body can't. Yeah, you're breathe. air hungry. You're air hungry, right? So <sighs> there's things that we can do to help them. You know, there's CPAPs, and some people get trached, and there's all these other things. But you lose the ability, your speech changes, mm. right? Um, you can't hold things. You're not able to walk. 
you just lose the ability to sort of be independent in any way. Right. You become, you need a lot of support. And there's no hope of anything getting better. Like you... We're doing amazing research all the time. There are things, you know, that we're doing, but there isn't at this... A cure. A cure. Okay. There's not a cure. There are some things that sometimes help people prolong different things or slow symptoms, but at this point... It is a diagnosis that you know you're going right. to die from. It's oh, not like cancer. It's a horrible disease. So what kind of work do you actually do at the ALS clinic? So I visit them as spiritual care. So I visit the patients. So I meet with them from the beginning, their diagnosis, till they die. Oh. And they come in like every three months, sometimes every six months, but they come in every three to six months. And we just keep giving them more things to help them, okay. right? Helping with the speech, helping with the saliva, helping with, you know, all of the things that we can possibly do. Uh, They rig up cool things for them to be able to eat better, right? Like a special spoon that they can use. Um, This thing called the Toby. So it's, you can talk into it, like you can look at it with your eyes Uh on a computer and it will, it's like got AI or intelligence in it, right? So it starts to figure out kind of how you talk. And so you look at like one word at a time, and it'll be like, there is a cat in the room, you know? So it starts talking for you. So it's incredible. So you might have these conversations with patients that take an hour because they're spelling it out very slowly. So they'll look at it, and then when they look up, the word gets delivered. Wow. So when people see a chaplain come into the ALS clinic, does that I don't know. Does it make them feel like some, more terminal? Some are terrified. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> right? and I feel bad because you have to be very oh, tender. Yes. You got to step very tenderly because, um, you know, well, first of all, there's some that they have the option of who they want to see. They can say, I don't want that person, that person. And then some people will be like, uh, no, on a chaplain, you know, that's okay. Do you think a chaplain or any spiritual care makes them feel like, maybe end of life is closer than they'd like to think? Yeah, I think often what happens is the first diagnosis, we sort of as a team sort of triage the patient's needs. And if they're if the doc's like, listen, it's just too overwhelming today. Let's yeah. not have the chaplain see oh. them today. Or sometimes they'll say, you know, we have spiritual care available and they'll say, I do want to see somebody today. So I've had many, many times where I go in a room and the patient has just been told, confirmed. This is the way they get it confirmed, right? Because oh. they get the EMG, they get all these tests done, they get, oh. they have all of these sort of, it takes a lot to diagnose ALS. It's a lot of eliminating other things to get to this mm-hmm. diagnosis. Um, and sometimes people have been looking for years for what is this that's going on with me, right? Sometimes they want to see me right away. Yeah. And it can be a fascinating first visit. And I enter very gently and I entered just as like, I'm Peggy, I'm part of the team, I'm, I'm spiritual care, and I'm here, and I have a badge that I turn over so it doesn't say Christian on it because I don't want to scare anybody. Oh, wow. I want everyone to feel like I'm safe, and, and I am, right? I'm not going to bring anything. I have no agenda. So I, um, I come in and I just let them know who I am, and I introduce kind of what I do. And then I say, how's your spirit? And if they mm-hmm. want to talk, right. right, they want to talk. 
So it kind of sounds like the difference between the hospital and the ALS clinic is that you get a real amount of time to build a relationship with somebody. It's like two to five years. You do. You're part of their life. Yeah. And you do sometimes with patients that you're going to see often. You know, they're going to be in and out in in the inpatient hospital. But with the clinic, you know you're going to see them every three to six months or something. Right. So you start to learn everything about their life. If they're, you know, if they want spiritual care, yeah. you start to, they talk about their kids and then the kid is married the next time you see them. And then, you know, all these differences that, that, um, of just huge amounts of information about them. And I get to learn tons about their history, their childhood. Yeah. Like really know them, not just I their really, illness, you know? And then often, which is really cool about outpatient clinics is somebody comes with them. Who's that? You know, right? Who's right. that? Is it the kid? Is it the, you know? So you see family dynamics. Mm. Is it the spouse? Oh, I bet you get a real Ooh, good perspective. Of you, stuff. Get a, you get a real <laughs> good perspective of stuff, and you see how everybody's handling it. Okay, and everybody handles it different. You know, there'll be some where sounds like, well, my mom's going to be the one that doesn't die. You know, she's going to be the miracle. So I want to know about the moment that you met. Sheila. Sheila. One of your most favorite. One of my favorites. Oh, I love her so much. I still love her. I can totally see her. She was, um, she came in for uh, the clinic, the initial consult, hoping, of course, what everyone hopes is that we say, no, it's not not this. Um, but oh, she I can't came even in. imagine going yeah. to that appointment and like just waiting for and it's that like diagnosis. four hours because you're seeing all these disciplines right so it's a long day and yeah. we let people know that um but unfortunately she had it and she came in and she was fantastic <laughs> she was fierce and sassy and funny and beautiful she had all this curly red hair she piled it up on her head she had fantastic manicures she had glorious, you know, Louis Vuitton shirts and bags and shoes. She was just beautiful. She was just a beautiful woman and she was very powerful. She was a CEO, a big executive, super, super successful. She was Jewish and um, I loved her right away and I came in and she's just like, well, isn't this just the shit? (laughs) Isn't this just the shit? I have ALS. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's horrible. It's I'm sorry. It's, you know, yes, this is horrible. She's like, okay, well, what do I got to do? I mean, she like went right into like tasky, Action, tasky, tasky, right? you know? And then she's like, now what are you? You know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like a chaplain. She's like, you're a chaplain? And she's like, what's your name? So she made me turn my badge, you know, because she's totally that. Like, just taking in everybody. I love her already. I love her so much. And she read my name, which is very Irish. And she said, oh, my gosh, you're Irish Catholic, aren't you? (laughs) And I said, I was raised Catholic. Yes, I'm Irish Catholic, um, even though I'm an ordained Christian. But, you know, I'm an Irish Catholic kid. And she said, I love it. My best friend when I was a little girl in New York was a Catholic girl. You remind me of her. I love it. And she was just super embracing Every time I talk about her, I think of more things because she's like, "Are you getting, are you here to help me die?" What's oh, she did. Oh, yeah. That? She's like, "You're gonna help me die." I'm like, I'll help you in any way I can. Listen, I'm a Jew. I'm a, I'm a secular Jew. I don't practice. 
My dad was more religious than my mom. My mother was a monster. Like right away, she's like, "You're in." I'm in. I love this. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Molly because yes. we were best friends, and she was, this, you know, non-practicing Jewish girl, and I was a Catholic <laughs> kid from St. Louis. We just came fast friends and loved spirituality, but like didn't want Jesus in the mix, but wanted. I mean, she she wanted you. She wanted Peggy. So <laughs> Sheila wants Peggy. Molly wanted Peggy. It all makes sense. Oh. She was fantastic. And she was very, um, very about control, obviously. I mean, a woman to be in that position of yeah. power and, and, and all of that. She So she was going to keep as much control as she could all the way through. Okay. She wanted all the doctors to give her the very best advice, the very best this. I want the very best this, all that kind of stuff. And um, so I got to know her for like three or four years. Wow. So I saw her. That's a while. That's a long time. Every three months for three or four years. And that is really getting to know somebody and really loving her. And she was so funny. And so she's like, I, I guess I should start thinking about God. I guess I should start <laughs> thinking about all that. What happens next? You know? And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about it, you know. And and, and I said, do you want me to? At, after we had a big discussion about it, she's like, I don't know, you know, if my dad's in heaven, I think I'll go. But if my mom's there, I don't know if I want to go. I mean, she was really clear about the the relationships of her parents. And she said, um, do you want to pray with me? How does that work? And I'm like, well, I'll pray, however you want me to pray. I said, what language? You know, she's like English. I go, no. <laughs> What language? Oh <laughs> like, right. do you say God? Do you say Lord? Do you say universe? What do you say to represent your spiritual truth, your sacred truth? And she's like, I don't know, honey, but no Jesus. No <laughs> Jesus. She put her hand, hand up. in the air. She put her hand up right at me. No Jesus. And I said, Sheila, I will never say Jesus. <laughs> and she's like, okay, then go. You know, and she would like, she loved it. She loved praying. Well, the rules were really clear. And that's why I love you so much, Peggy, is that you come in and you, like we always say, you meet people where they are, but you're really clear about the boundaries and how how do you want your spiritual care to feel? How do you yeah. want it to look? And that's just so rare. That's not what I experienced when I was a little Catholic kid. Nobody ever said, well, how do you yeah. feel about this? It was like, this. these are the rules. And I yeah. just think it's so beautiful that you, oh. you do that with people, um, not just during their death process, but in life. And that's just yeah. I think that's what makes you so amazing. I am curious, when did you, here she is, this feisty, strong woman. When did you start to see Sheila deteriorate a little bit? I started to see it, you know, it goes, unfortunately, it can go kind of fast. You know, I, I think after the first year, I had little, little things and then getting into like, um, you know, the second and third year, more obvious changes were happening. And then she needed a cane and kind of that kind of stuff, oh, wow. um, which she hated. But it was a fabulous cane. Oh, I it was gorgeous. Was it a Louis Vuitton cane? Yeah, it was like a Louis Vuitton cane. <laughs> Everything was Louis Vuitton. Her, her glasses were fabulous. Her jewelry was gorgeous. Um, but, you know, and then she'd say, oh, look at this shit. I got this cane. You know, she would always bitch and moan about everything that had to happen. And then she had some moments where she had real existential crisis, like, I guess this is real. Mm. You know, like if she wiped out or fell, which happens, um, she would have moments where she's like, oh, my God, this is real. What do I got to do? What do I got to do? And she, in her, in her faith tradition, she grew up in, you know, a non-practicing home, right? 
and just cultural Jews. And she said, I never got bar mitzvahed. Oh. And I'm, huh. and I said, well, why don't you do it now? And she's like, do you think? Oh, and I'm God. like, do it now if you want it. You know, I said, I, I can, I know some rabbis. <laughs> I got some, I got some peeps <laughs> I on got my connections, phone. Exactly. I got like five rabbis numbers <laughs> in my phone. I swear I do. And she's like, I, I want to do it. And she goes, oh, no, do I have to learn Hebrew? And I'm like, you're going to get a pass. I promise you, because that would take forever, right? She wanted to get it done. Yeah. Um, so, so she got she got bat mitzvah. She did. Oh, she got yeah, bat mitzvah. She How got did she mitzvah. handle all the stuff? Because I, I know she had children, right? She had children. Oh. And she really wanted to make sure that they were okay. So she had everything set up. She wanted everything completely Organized for them, nothing, not one stone left unturned. Well, and I can, I can't even imagine as being a mom and and yeah, whew, um, thinking about what five years means to you, and then thinking about how old your kids will be in those within those three to five years, and right. when you when you will be departing them and leaving them right. motherless like that is just yeah, oh, awful. <laughs> that and just rocks. It's, me. It just rocks you. And I do remember having this really wonderful conversation about. What can she do for her kids, like, spiritually and emotionally? Because she won't be here to be at their wedding and their first baby and all those things, right? These big life you marks. Tell her? I wanted, I'm like, tell me. I, I told her, if, you, if she's up to this, start now recording your voice. Oh, right. Voice memo out. Say, you know... David, you're turning 18, and this is what I this oh, is God. what I was hoping for you, and talking to them. And when I was 18, this is what I did, that kind of thing, right? So she's she's giving them the wisdom and the nuggets that she had planned that she would be alive all the way through. To, she thought she'd be 100. This woman, right? What else you can do, which is really beautiful, um, and my cousin Ginny um, did this for her girls. She went to the Hallmark store. Oh. And went bonkers. <laughs> oh my God, this is breaking my heart. But it's so beautiful. And she bought birthday cards for 12, oh. 13, 14. She bought birthday cards for all the years she could find. And then she bought, like, um, you know, you're doing great cards, all of thinking of you, Merry Christmas, Happy Thanksgiving. She bought all these cards and she had an entire library of cards. So each kid, you know, so I'm like, Sheila, what are what are the big things you're going to miss? Oh, call, you know, she's such an educated woman. She's like, well, college and graduate school. And when they get their PhD, like she's just assuming, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like her, her kids are going to be just as brilliant. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay. So she, you know, she was like, I'm going to write this for this David, for this, you know, for Isaac, that kind of thing. And she would, she would write it out and yeah. she'd have the cards. So they're in a file. So who's ever taking those kids, taking care of them, on their birthday, they get to go and get the card from their mm, mom. That's that gone. is was, Peggy. That's a beautiful. Isn't advice. that a good idea? I love that advice. I love it. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm over here like a hot mess. <laughs> this it makes me think like I'm listening to it secondhand, and yeah. you were there. It must be really hard to be a part of this, right? And to watch a mother say goodbye to her family and her children, and the deterioration of her over yeah. the years must have been really hard. Yeah. And. I'm just wondering how you at the clinic and how all the people at the clinic handle this stuff. How do you do it? Well, when you first start, you know, 
It's certainly not for the faint of heart. And not everybody wants to cover the clinic, um, you know, but you really have to take super good care of yourself. Yeah. And then there's this phenomenon that happens. It actually happens throughout the hospital, but the ALS clinic had happened to us a lot. It's called residence disease. I don't know if you've heard of this. I don't know. Residence disease? So what happens is when people start in medicine and chaplaincy and social work, anything that's in the hospital, right? And you're dealing with these patients that have these really some super rare, odd, you know, because anything you can think of that can go wrong with the human body can. So um, you start working with these people and you have this compassion for them and you're sitting there and talking to them and... They might be close to your age, close to your background and all that stuff. And they're like, well, it all started when I felt like, you know, my ankle was a little weak and I tripped. And then I'm like, my ankle's there, weak and I tripped. There. That's what it, resident <laughs> right. disease is that. Oh, got it. I think I have that. You think you have everything. <laughs> oh and there's God. this phenomenon in the first couple of years of medical school and and residents, especially doctors, working in clinics and hospitals where they're like going to their, their own doctor all the time. Okay, man, <laughs> run this test. Right. Run that test. I think I have Parkinson's. I think I have diabetes. I think I have... Did this. you have this at the... Did you have residence disease at the A ALS little clinic? bit at ALS. A little bit. Because I'm kind of clumsy anyway, so I'm like a, a little bit of a tripper. And a little bit of a like, whoops, drop the cup, that kind of stuff. And right. some of these things are part of that disease. And so we would, that was one of the things we'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, do I have ALS? Do I, because it makes you think about that. And it also makes you so grateful oh, I for your health. I always, I have sort of this thing where sometimes when I leave a room and an ALS clinic, I said a lot, I was like, you know, for the grace of God, there go I. That, Wait, say that again. For the grace of God, there go I. There go I. Right? What does that mean? Great, God gave me the grace that isn't me. Mm. You know, it's like, but for the grace that. So, I don't have this. Yeah, that could be me. Yeah, right. Okay. And I think the more, in a way, I think the residence disease is kind of an important thing that should happen in a way for young docs because they start to realize the fragility of their own health. Right. That we're in these, you know, bodies on loan for just so long and biological accidents happen all the time. And you don't know if it's going to happen to you. So be very gracious with yourself and be very grateful for what you have. Got it. That right. makes sense. Take me back to Sheila. So I think it was 2016 and things started falling apart more. And things were, she came in one day, I remember, I'll never forget, she came in one day and she always had to see me. She's like, son, Peggy in here. <laughs> and I came in and she was as quaffed as she could be, but she was not the same quaff. Mm. So her hair wasn't really as fantastic. Like it was fantastic. It just wasn't styled right. just so. And um, she had a big schmutz on her shirt. Just so not Sheila. It's not Sheila. I've, I've only known her for yeah. a short time, but I'm like, that's not Sheila. Okay. She had a schmutz. Yeah. And she was so pissed and so angry. Mm. And she was just like, oh, good damn it. Mm -hmm. oh. You know, like you and I get a schmutz and we're like, no, I'll change my shirt. Or, oh, shoot. I love this shirt. I hope it doesn't stain. For her. For her, it was just like, it's coming. Yeah. 
it's coming. Yep. Right? Yeah. And because it, it's harder to eat. Everything takes more time. Did she ever cry about it with you? She cried about it with me. She did. And towards the end, she'd cry more and more. And she was like, this just sucks. (laughs) Isn't this just shit? She'd say, isn't this just shit? And she she just hated it so much. And I was like, ah, I'm so sorry. And she's like, you can see it's changing, right? Mm. Are you honest with me? Yeah, I can. I'm not going to say I don't. That's not fair. She counts on you for the truth. And she'll feel crazy if I tell her something that she knows is true. That You can't do that to people. So I was like, no, yeah, I do see it. I do. And she's like, you know, just so devastated that that incident happened. But I think it was the next time she came in, the Death with Dignity Act had been approved in California in 2016. Okay. And she came in, and she was so excited to tell me. What'd she say? I came in, and she was, Peggy, did you hear the good news? And I'm just like, miracle? What? I don't know. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I didn't know what the news was. And she's like, they, that assisted suicide, the bill passed. I don't have to go to Oregon. I can do it right here in California. Let's go. Sign me up. Get the neurologist. Get the uh, palliative care team. I want to talk about this. Oh, let's go. And she was like, I'm doing it. I am doing it. She was I am doing it. Because I know a lot of people get this prescription and they don't use it. Majority get it. Okay. And the majority of that get it. You know, a lot of people don't opt at all, right? It's a total personal choice. And there's a million nuances that go into it, of course. But the people that choose to get it statistically get the medicine, have it at home, and don't use it. Huh. They just need to know it's there, they like a safety net. It's a safety It's a. It is an option. It's a choice. And when you have something as, you know, mean as ALS, um, you any choice that you can have is kind of incredible because you really lose choice. You lose choice. That's, oh, wow. You lose Just choice. to know it's there. And you lose power and you lose control. And a person like Sheila... That's her living hell. That's the hell on earth to her, right? So talk to me a little bit about the drug. Like, I don't know much about this, about yeah. the drug and how you yeah. take it. And like, you have, I mean, you get a prescription. Talk, talk me through yeah. that because I don't, like I've heard, like when Molly was considering doing yeah. this, she called it the kill pill because <laughs> she's so like... She's so wrong. She wants to find the worst word to describe something. everything. She the was so pill. funny. She's just so crass. Is I it love. a pill? Um, actually, it's liquid. This is how much I know. Again, I'm not the doc, but okay. this is how much I know of it. It's like a drink, and you have to self-administer it. It cannot be given to you. Somebody can help you prepare it, help with all that kind of stuff, but you actually have to be able to administer it yourself. So this seems odd to me because ALS robs you of your ability to, to use your hands and move right. your Right. So it's this... So you can rig something. What? Somebody can rig something for you. Mm-hmm. What, I don't know what that means. So they can, they can put together something where maybe um, it will be... It, you'll be able to hit it with your elbow or your foot or something, and it will tilt, and you can get it into your mouth. Because other people can't give it no. to you? No. Oh, they gosh. can't because they... It has to be your entire choice. And self-administered. Because you're giving it to them for them to die. So you can't say, you know, wow, you can get in big trouble. Okay, so I'm starting to understand this more. I'm also understanding that it is, uh, 
it's a tightrope act, right? Because the timing is so important and getting all your ducks in a row like Sheila's doing and also making sure you administer the medication at the right time where you feel like it's not too soon emotionally, that you're oh, not too far gone where you can't give it to you. Like you have to prepare oh, yourself. So intense. You know, you have to prepare yourself. And she had kids, you know, so she's preparing them. So what and were these conversations like between the two of you where she was starting to ask the deep, dark questions? Was, she had to sit herself down and to really think. Okay. I mean, ALS was slowing her down. You have no choice. Everything is, everyone has to help you all the time. And it quieted point. everything down for her. Huh? It quieted her. And she did more digging into the Torah and prayer. And she talked about her dad a lot. She started to feel this kind of ancestral um, pull to him, which is very rich and happens for me, you know most people. But I, I believe for my experience with the Jewish tradition, which is a beautiful, rich religion, that it's really important. There's a really, really important connection ancestrally, right? Because the main thing is be a blessing. What do you? What is your legacy you're leaving? That's mm. a huge part of Judaism. And so for her, she was connecting to her dad so much, and she was really excited to, that she might be able to see him. She was oh. dreaming about him. Oh. She was hearing his voice again in her mind. And it was so dear, you know? And she's like, do you think he's going to be there? Mm. And I was like, what do you think? She goes, I think he's going to be there. I think he's going to help me. He's going to, you know, welcome me. I said, I do too. I do too. You know, I'm not going to tell her what her her truth is, but um, like you in the question about suicide, yeah. when you ask the hard question, what, you, what do you think your death's going to look like? Who do you think you're going to see when you get there? What does heaven look like to you? People will answer it. So as convicted as she was yeah. in her life, she still had doubts. She still had doubts. Did Sheila ever really ask you the big, dark questions? She did. She dug in. She asked if this was a sin. Mm. And I asked her, what is sin to you? What is, a, what is a sin to you? And she, so eloquent, she was like, it's when you hurt somebody, you intentionally hurt somebody, you know, disregard for other people, you do bad things. I don't know if I see that this is sin then. Right? That's none of See, what this, this is would why be. you're such an amazing friend and chaplain is because you always let the patient lead. You take it back to them. You listen to them. You process it with them. You don't right. give them a hard answer. You you right. bring it back to the patient. And that's spiritual care. That's, that's spiritual it. care. And I was like, that doesn't sound like sin to me. Then if that if that's what you feel sin is, it doesn't sound like that to me. Does it? And she's like, no, it doesn't sound like that to me because you're wanting to end suffering for yourself, yeah, you know? And then she asked me if she would go to hell. You know, Ooh. do you think this is... What did you say? I said, you know, well, I feel like God's mercy is so huge. You know, what? how... I don't think there's... I don't think that this is something that you need to worry about with the way you've lived your life and who you are. Mm. And that the mercy can reach to such places. And I, what I really wanted to talk to her about, and we did get into slowly, was about, like, what does she, what does she see would 
what is hell, mm-hmm. right? And is is suffering is the suffering on this earth hell? Mm-hmm. And and what does that look like to her? I mean, we had this huge discussion about hell. And if God can reach, you know, the depths of all these different places, and if God reached you through your dad, and if God is present to you now in ways that never before, there's so much mystery. Mm. Why wouldn't there be this incredible grace and mercy for you when you die? You know, and you're you're feeling this intense connection to your dad. So you really, you know, that isn't just an accident. That's a blessing, right? There's something in that that's saying, you know, Sheila, come home. I'm here. I'm daddy's here. You're going to be okay. I'm going to, you know. So she, because she kept feeling that mm. this sort of um, paternal comfort from him, and so I, I always want to go back to mercy because. Who am I to say something? Somebody's going to hell. You know what I mean? It's well, like, I mean, that's what we're taught. You know, when but, I was in Catholic school, it was taught if you, if you suicide is a sin, you go to hell. And I just, you know, I, I think when you're in your final moments, you think, oh gosh, like you have those fears. And of course, it's okay. Do. And it's and totally I, okay to have those questions and have those fears. And it'd be weird if you don't question them. And she was a person that you could have a conversation with for a long time because she's so smart. So questions keep coming mm-hmm. and you just keep digging deep. And then she came to the point where she she said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I mean, that's her. You know, she's a problem solver. So tell me about Sheila's final appointment okay. with you in the clinic. So the very next time um, she came uh, was the last time. It's a, a Wednesday clinic. And so I walked in and, oh, Peggy, Peggy, Sheila, she, you know, the whole thing mm-hmm. we do. We, and she kind of gave me that hug with just as much as she could muster up, oh. kind of just her forearms, right? And she was really struggling to talk. Um, but I speak ALS pretty good. <laughs> I've been doing it a long time, so I'm, I'm pretty good with it. Um, and she's told me, um, she goes, I'm going to die Tuesday. <gasps> So I want to say goodbye to you today. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) okay, okay, Tuesday. Why Tuesday? I think it was something about that that worked out for everybody. Like it was the right day. (laughs) Like the weekends are booked. Sheila, because, you know, she had all these girlfriends. She had all these powerful, cool friends, right? So, and she was like, matter of fact, it's just like, you know, meet me on Wednesday for this or whatever. I mean, it was just so super, super concise. And she's like, so I'm dying Tuesday. And I said, oh my goodness. Okay. And uh, she said, I want to say goodbye. (laughs) And I was like, eh. You know, and she goes, so I won't see you again after today, but I'll see you again. And I said, I'm counting on that because I'm like, if anyone's going to show me the ropes in heaven, it's going to be you (laughs) because you're going to have everything figured out. You're going to know the best place to go, the best people and all that. And so we joked a lot, like heaven for her, how she's going to be like controlling everything, you know, um, telling St. Peter how he could do it better, whatever. How did you feel? Did you... I was like, 
Ooh, okay. You know, I mean, I knew it was coming because she had already said the death with dignity. We had the big yeah. sort of house and talk and everything. And um, she was really getting close to her, the spirit of her dad. So I knew that that meant she was getting closer. Okay. And then what happened? And then she said, so I want to say goodbye and I want I want you to pray me home, honey. Oh, God. You know, I don't cry. <laughs> and, uh, and she was like, Ugh. it was so dear because she, um, you know, she couldn't move that great anymore, but she pushed her hand out and she grabbed my hand. She couldn't really squeeze it. It was sort of that, the way they can hold it. And she was like, I love you. Thank you. She said, um, thank you for, you know, talking about God. Thank you for being with me through this whole process. Thank you for all of the the laughter and the companionship. And, you know, just she just said beautiful things to me. And she was like, I'm really ready. And I, and I love you. And I said, I love you. I said, I really love you. And I remember I kind of patted her hair, you know, and I, I was like, I'll never forget you. She pulled me in for a kind of a sloppy smooch. And, uh, and then she said, pray me home, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it'd be my honor. It'd be my privilege to pray you home, Sheila. And she said, no, Jesus. <laughs> And I laughed, like, I laughed so hard. And I was like, no, Jesus, Sheila, no, Jesus. You know, it's like, don't slip it on me in the last minute, not the last time. And she was like, really wanted to look in my eyes and really talk to me. So this happens a lot, you said, with people at the end. This often happens when people are at the very end of their life. Mm -hmm. And it happens with kids all the time, healthy or not. Um, that they look right in your eyes when you pray with them. They mm -hmm. don't want to close their eyes. They don't want to go internal. They want to look right at you because kids will pray with you and just be like right in your eyes. And so Sheila wanted to just look right in my eyes for this prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I, just, I just called out to the God of all people and I asked that Sheila have a merciful and beautiful transition home and that her dad welcome her, mm -hmm. that her dad's right there when she gets there. And that this Tuesday will be a magical, beautiful goodbye, and that her boys will feel comforted, and they will be cared for, and that she can feel safe. Tell me, what was Sheila's death day celebration like? Oh, it, I heard everything about it. We got to hear the whole story. And she had a blowout party. She had a great house, and she had this big yard, and she put up huge screens for the movies. She wanted her favorite movies playing. What were they? When Harry Met Sally. Oh. <laughs> awesome. And Young Frankenstein. <laughs> which she and I bonded over huge because it's like yeah, one you of my love that. I love it. I love that. Yeah. Gene Wilder. Oh my God. Love him. <laughs> I love him. So she had those playing. She had champagne and wine and, you know, just tons of fantastic, all her favorite food. And all of her favorite people and her kids and everyone in her life was there. And she was outside um, in beautiful California weather. And she watched movies and drank with them. I and love visited. Her. I heard she wore this gorgeous, flowy sundress. Oh. 
I heard she looked gorgeous. She was all jeweled in her makeup and, you know, like they did her whole makeup and hair and everything. Like all her girlfriends did that for her, you know, because at that point you can't do, you can't put your mascara Mm -hmm. on or anything anymore. You have your whole, your people. You have your whole people and it was just gorgeous. And then she sat down on the lounger, lay down on the lounger and she took the medicine. And everyone was around her. Oh, my gosh. And they were surrounding her, and they were touching her, and they were saying, I love you. People were singing, you know, and she just died. And everybody was, it was beautiful. We got the report, which I was very happy to hear that it was just a fantastically smooth, beautiful death. And she got everything she wanted. Mm. So I was like, yeah, Sheila. She did it. She did it exactly the way she wanted it. It sounds perfect. I mean, as perfect as saying goodbye to everyone that you love could be. Like, she planned a death party for herself. Yes. And did it on her terms. On her terms. And she was in charge. And she was in charge. (sighs) She also was brilliantly savvy psychologically, and she had had, you know, her boys... um, in a lot of therapy and preparation, the whole, right from beginning diagnosis all the way through. Oh, Sheila. So I know, right? Just, what a role model. It's so interesting for you to be a, such an intimate part of her life. Yeah. And her choosing of how she's going to pass for, th- what, three or four years? Right. You kind of helped her die. How did you handle that? Like, how You know, do you- Nikki, I just hold on to the fact that the world was just better because Sheila was in it. Mm. You know, she she blessed us. You know, it's funny. I like we're recording today and when we when we shut off the mics to go outside for a minute you said i think sheila's here today i do i kind of feel her do you too like i kind of feel i feel her too i just feel like she's like she's loving this she's like oh my god you're doing a podcast about me i feel like she's going (laughs) i made it honey (laughs) right i made it and i still look gorgeous i still look i look better than ever she's probably like 24 now (laughs) Right, and her nails are done. Done, she's nines. gorgeous. <laughs> and it's just like Louis Vuitton everywhere in heaven for her. So, Peggy, how do you get closure in all of this? Well, there was a card on the table on Wednesday's clinic because she had died the night, day before, and so we all fill it out and we send it to her loved ones, which would be her boys. And to me, I like to just say, you know, it was an incredible privilege to know your mom. Mm. And I loved her, and we're grateful that we had, you know, got to share some time with her. And so just to do that, to get that kind of out, sometimes I'll take a bath. Sometimes I'll, you know, watch a f- great movie. That Now, I mean, I can't see Harry Met Sally without thinking about her. And I will never watch you that never movie again without ever, thinking of I Sheila. Know. <laughs> oh, you Sheila. Know, uh, Sheila. I feel so convicted in the next life. And that she's there, that it gives me a lot of comfort. And even just like us now talking where I'm like, I feel like she's here. I know. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It gives me comfort. Talk about death with dignity. Yes. (laughs) Nikki, that's it. That's exactly it. This is like the poster case for how beautiful that that law can be. You know, and it's it's not a pro-death law. It's not. It's a pro-choice. Right? Right. It's a pro-choice. And it's not like it happens all the time. People aren't just doing it 
constantly. It's actually very rare in mm-hmm. California. In mm-hmm. 2021, according to the California End of Life Option Act data report, because I did my research. <laughs> As you do. In 2021, less than 800 people in California just initiated the process, right? Got started. And mind you, roughly 329,000 people died in California that year, and roughly less than 500 used the Death with Dignity Act. So it's it's very rare. It's very rare. Yeah. It's not happening all the time. No. But if you want, if it's going to happen, <laughs> Sheila. Be Sheila. <laughs> be Sheila. <laughs> Hashtag be Sheila. Yes, exactly. So, Pegs, I got to ask you. Yeah. What would you do? Like, if you were faced with this type of scenario? Gosh, I don't know. You know, it's a good question. It would depend on, I guess, what the diagnosis was. Yeah. But I would definitely consider it for sure. Yeah. I definitely would. It would be a spiritual wrestle and a lot of wrestles for me, but what would you do? Hmm. I would be wrestling the uh-huh. same as you. Wrestling, yeah. I'd want the prescription. Okay. I'd want to know yeah, it was yeah. there, right? That's, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, but if I had a terminal illness and a lot of pain and I yeah. couldn't take care of myself and people were very burdened by me, I would probably choose death with dignity. Yeah. Or you can just push me in front of a bus, thanks. <laughs> But there's no guarantees with the bus. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? How do you, you work at a hospital? How do you, you do know that? I'm telling you. I've seen people hit by bus. It, it doesn't always work. Don't, don't, don't do oh, it, Nick. We go through so much together in an episode. <laughs> okay. Okay. I need a martini. Me too, hon. Right. Me too. <laughs> so maybe instead of our uh, gin martini with a lemon twist, we'll do yeah. one with olives today. Yes, but it has to be on the side. Has to be on the side. Uh, <laughs> to Sheila. To Sheila. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go watch When Harry Met Sally. Let's do. I love that movie. <laughs> hey, we super appreciate you listening today. We do. And if you happen to have a story or you want to share your thoughts, just shoot me a DM at Nikki Boyer on Instagram. And if you like our show, give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. And follow us wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, Near Death has bonus content where we get a little more personal at our martini after party. So join us. For that bonus content, subscribe to Lemonada Premium and Apple Podcasts. In addition to all of the content you'll get from our show, you can also unlock an array of bonus content from all the other Lemonada shows. Check out the free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on the little lemon logo in the middle of the screen. Near Death is a Dying for Media production. New episodes drop every Wednesday. The show is hosted by Reverend Peggy and me, Nikki Boyer. Producer is Katie Amanda Keen. Tommy Fields is head of audio for Dying for Media. Nikki Boyer and Kevin Sabi are executive producers for Dying for Media. Executive producer is Reverend Peggy. Ad sales and distribution by Lemonada Media. And for more information on today's episode, make sure to check out our show notes. And thanks again for hanging out with us today. We appreciate you. See you next time. <laughs>